And what Luke brings out at the close of the Galilean ministry are two things. One, finally settling in Luke's gospel, who is Jesus? A question that's been echoing, echoing in the book from the disciples. Who then is this? As they watch him rebuke the wind and waves. Herod, who then is this? Jesus asking them himself, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? On the one hand, we see the disciples get it. You are the Christ of God, is Peter's answer in Luke 9, verse 20. Then, added to that information, he, he is the divine Messiah, is the other thread that is equally important for them to grasp, and that is he is the suffering Messiah. And Jesus immediately after Peter's confession says this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. It was that extra piece of information that somehow this divine Messiah, this king who would rule the nations with a rod of iron, this one who would set up a kingdom on earth would be rejected suffer and die. They, they didn't understand this. Consequently, as we saw last week, they did not understand their own identity because Jesus was calling on them. If you look at 9, verse 23, likewise, like the master, like the servant, master would be rejected, the master would suffer and die. He said to them all, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So Jesus makes it clear there is a glory that is coming and there is a powerful coming where that rod of iron will be wielded. But right now, Jesus' ministry is one of suffering and shame and rejection. He's calling his disciples who will, if they are faithful, share in his future glory. He's calling on us. He's calling on them to share in his present suffering there. And that was precisely what the disciples failed to grasp. And last week when we were trying to answer the question, why? Why did they fail? Why did Jesus rebuke them? Why do you have to come over and say, let this sink into your ears? In verse Um, 44, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And what we realize is their inability to grasp Jesus' identity and mission led to their inability to understand their own identity and mission as his disciples. They are still operating, they're still holding on to this notion of honor and glory and power and pomp and praise, which is half true in the kingdom all those things will be there in the kingdom when christ returns at his second coming we will rule and reign with him and every eye will see and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father but that wasn't and isn't what jesus is calling them and calling us to now They're unwilling to accept it. Consequently, Luke gives us in this closing section three examples of how that 
Rejection of Jesus' teaching played out in life. Make no mistake, if you're unwilling to embrace God's call to discipleship, that error will show up. It's fundamentally one error. It could be one point instead of three. But three demonstrations of this, three mistakes in following after Jesus. We've heard what Jesus said. We've heard what he's taught them. We've seen his example. And now we will see the disciples demonstrate three times they don't get this. In fact, they reject this. They need further instruction. So let's begin by reading our passage, Luke 9, 46 to 56. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. The one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and went on to another village. And you'll notice that we cross that gap, that division gap in Luke. There's a very real sense in which verse 51 is a hinge point in the book, and we're going over that hinge. We're we're going to look at that part starting in verse 51 again next week. I grabbed it, went that far forward, because it gives the third and final example of the disciples' failure, which is what we're looking at this morning. How can we tell what is the fruit born of an unwillingness to embrace God's call for discipleship. How how could we know? Because we read what Jesus says, we read his call to self-denial, we read his call to picking up a cross, and how do I know if we're doing this? Well, here we get three illustrations of the type of fruit a refusal to do that will bear. And by that, we can see its ugliness, and we can also use that as a way of looking at ourselves. Are we, in some respects, unwilling to answer Jesus' call to follow after him? So let's look at it in point one, making the mistake, mistaking, sorry, the nature of greatness. Mistaking the nature of greatness. So what's just happened? Jesus has come down from the mountain where he met with God and Moses and Elijah, and he encounters a demoniac. And the father of the demoniac pleads with him, begs him to heal the son because the disciples are unable. And then Jesus expresses his grief, his frustration at the matter heals the boy, and then all were astonished, verse 43, but while they were all marveling at everything that was going on, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into yours. He corrects them. So I want you to think about it. The disciples have been publicly embarrassed, right? Because they've, they've been known, they were sent out at the beginning of chapter 9. They've been known to be able to do the very thing they could not do here. It's a great crowd, a lot of people seeing them fail, 
And then Jesus, on top of that, expresses his frustration at their failure. He pulls them aside, says, listen up, let this sink into your ears. How, how might you respond? How might I respond? How did they respond to that? Did they listen? Did they repent? Did they humble themselves? No. What happens when we reject God's call for discipleship? We reject and misunderstand the nature of grace. I mean, the, the striking contrast, they argued about who was greatest. But I, I think that's like human nature. What, what do we naturally do when our pride takes a blow? We very naturally and very quickly want to find something else to be proud of. Yes, yes, I failed here, but I've got this. Perhaps this is a way they're dealing with their failure, making the mistake of greatness. The disciples were disputing among themselves about who was the greatest. Now, notice a couple things in this. They are seeking glory and honor here and now. There's there's nothing fundamentally wrong in seeking glory and honor. Jesus is just emphatic. Seek glory and honor from God. In fact, turn back a little bit in chapter 9. Part of the motivation of why we should be willing to forsake our lives here and now is for glory to come. Look at verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You don't want shame then, do you? And the opposite of shame is glory. You want glory when Christ comes. That's, that's the motivation of the argument. You don't want shame when Jesus comes. You don't want him to be ashamed of you. You want him to be pleased with you, to honor your faithfulness. So there's nothing fundamentally wrong with wanting glory. The question is, where do you want it from, and when must you have it? If you want the glory and honor that comes from God, that's a great thing. If you're willing to wait for God's time, that's a good thing. The disciples sought glory and honor here and now. They didn't seek it either from God. They sought it from each other. That's the other big problem. They're not looking for the glory and honor that comes from God. They're looking for the glory and honor that comes from man. They, they didn't even ask him. I mean, it'd be pretty simple. Hey, Jesus, Master, which, which one of us is the... They don't talk to him. They're not even fundamentally looking for his judgment. What they want is the recognition of their peers that they're the greatest. You, you, you get that, right? They're not looking for Jesus to say which one of them is the greatest. Peter is presumably looking for John to say who's the greatest, and John is looking for Andrew to say. They, they want the recognition here and now. And, and we do that, don't we? We care what others think of us. We want to be praised. We want to be thought of as smart, as skillful. We want that recognition here and we want it now. We don't want it from God. We want it from other people. Jesus, a little later in Luke's Gospel, will warn the Pharisees that you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Even a little while earlier in in Jesus' teaching of the disciples on the plain, what did he tell them? Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven. But woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so did their fathers due to the false prophets. The disciples, presumably as a way of dealing with the sting of their failure, the sting of the rebuke, begin arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. Not looking even for Jesus' judgment on the matter. I want to hear it from you. I want you to tell me I'm the greatest. 
want you to tell me that I'm good. It's, it's foolish. It's destructive. Paul says this about the folly of judging ourselves. This is a trap we fall into. We want to judge ourselves by ourselves instead of by Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this in verse 12, not that we dare classify ourselves or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves by one another, they are without understanding. Without understanding. When I measure myself by other people, and and there's two ways that works. Some people measure themselves and build themselves up in pride. Other people measure themselves and feel shame. I, I don't drive as nice a car as that person. I don't have as nice clothes as that person. I don't live in as nice a house as that person. I don't have as many degrees as that person. And anything like that, whether you come out on top or on the bottom, Paul says, is foolish and without understanding. And it's so plain here how, how ugly this is. A dispute, who's the greatest? But we, we do this. We, we care what people think of us. And we want to know how we, we rank in the pecking order. So what, is, what does Jesus do to correct this? Jesus brings outside a child. And what's interesting is it is entirely possible the child he brings is the same child he cast the demon out of. We can't be certain, but it's entirely possible. Jesus corrects them gently. He could, he could just rebuke them. He could just blast them. And by the end of this passage that we look at, he will. He just turns around and rebukes them. But notice the gentleness of our Savior. He, he understands what they're saying. He overhears the discussion, but he also knows the reasoning in their hearts. He knows that they've got a wrong understanding of honor. They've got a wrong understanding of glory and its privileges. What does it say he does? Took a child and put him by his side and said to him, them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He uses a child to teach them greatness. What we learn from this is two things. One, greatness is established by one's relationship to Jesus. Greatness is established by one's relationship to Jesus. It is not inherent to you. Greatness and glory is derivative and it comes from God. Jesus has already said as much. Whoever's least in the kingdom, remember Luke 7, is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because they're inherently great. No, because we get the privilege of proclaiming Christ having come. So what's going on here? I think a lot of people um, can misunderstand this. There are times where Jesus commends children. Don't forbid the children to come to me. This isn't about children or even us becoming like children. What Jesus is doing, and I'll read an extended quote from Joel Green, is he's taking one of the least honorable people in their society, bringing the child alongside of him, giving him the position of honor, and showing them how they should be thinking, rather than how can I get glory and honor, how can I get you to praise and honor me, rather you should be honoring others. Let me read this quote. Rather than dismissing them in frustration, though, Jesus provides them with an object lesson of profound significance. Taking a child, perhaps even the child he had just restored to health, he places the child in a position of honor at his side, then makes a pronouncement that undermines everything they would have taken for granted regarding questions of status and social relations. 
To welcome people would be to extend to them honor and hospitality, to regard them as guests. But one would only welcome a social equal or one whose honor was above one's own. Like, for instance, when the Pharisees had the dinner party for Jesus, honoring this teacher. But normally they would, um, the uh, children whose place of social residence was defined at the bottom of the ladder of esteem might be called upon to perform acts of hospitality, such as the washing of feet or serving food, but normally they would not themselves be recipients of honorable behavior. Jesus thus turns the social pyramid upside down, undermining the very conventions that led the disciples to deliberate in the first place over their relative greatness. While the disciples are aware of Jesus' greatness as one who shares in divine glory and through whom the majesty of God is evident, their categories do not allow for his predictions of shameful rejection. Jesus' counterproposal is relentless, for he calls upon his followers to welcome those of the lowest status, the poor, even this child in my name. That is, To act in this way is to perform in a way consistent with Jesus' own commitments and commission. Albeit in a roundabout way, he goes so far as to assert that this topsy-turvy social ethic is grounded in the divine purpose. To honor children is to honor Jesus, and to honor Jesus is to honor the one who sent him. That is, God himself. We've seen this already modeled by Jesus. Jesus was reclining at a dinner party and in comes a woman known to be a sinner, either a prostitute or an adulteress. And she falls down on her her face, on her hands, and begins weeping and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And what are the Pharisees concerned about? If this man were a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman this is. What do we learn from Jesus? Jesus welcomes. Jesus doesn't treat with contempt this woman. Jesus does not buy into the social standards of honor and who's up and who's down. This is a woman of faith. Calls her daughter. Your sins are forgiven you. Go in peace. Jesus has modeled this type of of, of giving of honor. Here are the disciples wrangling amongst themselves, but who's great? And Jesus says, really what you should be doing is showing honor, welcoming those Why do you want honor? I want honor so I can be lifted up away from the likes of you. (laughs) Rather, they should follow the model of Jesus who comes down, who descends to mingle with people like us. People who he's already just said are really kind of difficult at times to deal with. Greatness is established by one's relationship to Jesus and greatness is seen in one's humility. Greatness is seen in one's humility. Now notice, Jesus isn't interested in figuring out who's the greatest. His answer doesn't say who's the greatest, simply who is great. Greatness is on the table. You, you, you and I can be great. Jesus offers no help in figuring out who's the greatest. But greatness is on the table. But the one who is least among you all is the one who is great. How do you demonstrate greatness? Humility. Humility. You and I evidence greatness in our humility, seen in our willingness to associate, serve, show honor to others. And listen listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is a tremendous principle. Philippians chapter 2. 
And Paul is going to make this movement. He's going to give the Philippians the instruction to be humble, to focus on others. And then he's going to point them to the example of Christ. Philippians chapter 2. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. You know, things like getting in an argument of who's the greatest. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus had all rights. Jesus had all honors and all privileges. He wasn't fighting for them. He wasn't holding on to them. He let go of them for a time. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, how does God respond to such humility? He honors it. He exalts it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why is Jesus exalted by the Father? Because Jesus was humble and obedient. Greatness is seen in one's humility. Greatness is established by one's relationship to Jesus. What's the second mistake they make? Mistaking the identity of your enemy. Mistaking the identity of your enemy. Now, John answered this. There's two possibilities here. I tend to think John is being convicted. This is a confession, an admission. It's also possible that John's pushing back. But I think it's far more likely John is actually beginning to get some of what Jesus is saying and is making an admission. But John answered Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The one who is not against you is for you. The disciples were trying to stop another minister. Now, here's, we don't know who this guy is. There is precedent, by the way, for other people being commissioned by Jesus. We saw the, the demoniac of the Gerasenes being sent out by Jesus, not explicitly given power and authority over demons, but commissioned by Jesus to go and preach and proclaim. So even though Jesus has assembled his disciples who travel with him and sit at his feet, we've seen at least one person in Luke's gospel who is legitimately functioning apart from that entourage of Jesus doing ministry. Here is apparently another because Luke makes no mistake. They were trying to stop him, but he was casting out Jesus, demons in Jesus' name. He was successful. Unlike the attempted Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva, who you can read about in Acts, who are going around saying, you know, demon, we adjure you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, be gone. And the demon just laughed at them and beat them and drove them out bloodied and naked. This man was doing it, and he was doing it in Jesus' name which means God has granted him 
the power to do these things. So presumably God has authenticated his ministry through the spiritual power this man was exercising. Notice also that he's succeeding in Jesus' name precisely where they have just failed. Precisely. They lacked the faith and understanding to have the spiritual power to do the very thing he's doing. How do they respond to that? Praise God, more people who are being oppressed by demons are freed. Praise God, isn't it amazing how even through other means and other channels, God's word is going out? Nope. They were trying to stop him. Why? Notice the words here. He was ministering in Jesus' name, but just not with them. Don't, Don't miss that. Because he does not follow with us. It's not even he's not following you. They don't make that charge. He's not following with us. He's not part of our group. He's not doing it our way. Presumably the disciples were thinking something like this. They being the 12 disciples are the greatest class. And they were trying to figure out within that class who the greatest of them was. But surely they're greater than everyone else who's following Jesus. And surely that group is greater than anyone who's not with them. So who is this guy who's making them look bad? Who is this guy who's succeeding where they're failing? He needs to stop that. Because when you reject a true call to discipleship and you care about people's honor and what people think of you, you don't want to look bad. And so they they become exclusive and elitist and factious, and they were trying to stop this man from ministering. I mean, how how oxymoronic is that? They're missing the enemy. The enemy is the devil and the powers of darkness. This man is freeing people from suffering. This man is rebuking, by God's power, in Jesus' name, demons. They're trying to stop him because they've mistaken the identity of their enemy. You see, when you, when you care about the glory and honor that comes from man, the person who threatens your glory and honor becomes your enemy. You gotta stop them. Can't have that. Jesus corrects them again. The one who is not against you is for you. There's a similar example. You know, Turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. There's an incident very similar to this with Moses and with Jesus having just so closely been identified as the new Moses, as the greater prophet, having spoken with Moses. The disciples could have thought of this. In in, in Numbers chapter 11, and we'll pick it up in verse 24. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders. You know, it's interesting, as Jesus, as soon as we get to chapter 10, is going to commission and send down 70. The disciples thought they were the only ones given the power and authority to do these things. Jesus will correct that again when he commissions 70. Moses went and told the people God's word. He gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. As soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied because they did not, but they did not continue doing it. So, so Moses calls 70 men. The Lord gives them a portion of his spirit and they prophesy. Now, two men remained in the camp one named Eldad, the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. 
And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. The Lord would put his spirit on them. There's an example of how to respond. I want you to notice a couple of things. Um, We don't want to get the wrong point from this. There's no doctrinal disagreement between this exorcist and the disciples. He's doing it in Jesus' name. He's not doing it in some other name. There's no doctrinal disagreement. We, We are told to contest earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. We read Paul's letters and he exposes errors and he calls out false doctrine and truth. That's not what's going on here. These are not different sets of beliefs. These are different ways of doing ministry. This is, in fact, much closer to the factionism and, and, and groups that were occurring in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 13, Paul rebukes them. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, that be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that you are quarreling. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas, and I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? What was going on at Corinth? And again, this is not doctrinal division. If it was doctrinal division, then surely the I follow Christ group is correct. It's a personality issue. We'll find out, it really boils down to preaching, that Apollos is a mighty mighty speaker in Greek rhetorical style. He has wise words, whereas Paul freely admits he stutters, mumbles. He, he, he's not a terribly good public speaker. And yet Paul insists that divisions over such things evidence their carnality, their immaturity. I'm of this group. I'm of that group. Jesus tells them, the one who is not against you is for you. Two points from this. One, do not reject... Do not reject one whom God has accepted. Do not reject one whom God has accepted. God is validating, was validating this itinerant exorcist. He he would not have been able to do it had God not been validating him. God has put his seal of approval on this man for whatever reason, we don't know, but he was, as the text is clear, he was casting out demons. They're trying to stop him. So clearly God has received and accepted this man, and they're trying to stop him, presumably out of jealousy or elitism or something like that. Listen to Romans 14, where a similar issue is going on. There's a group in in the church at Rome who eats meat. There's a group who eats vegetables, and there's friction. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 14, which is not in my... There it is. Okay. Let no one... Let the one who eats not despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands and falls. He'll be upheld. You know, Jesus has just told them that they should associate, that they should welcome with the least. And here they are, unwilling to associate with someone who's clearly a peer in many respects. Joel Green writes this, the failure of the disciples is presented at its most basic level in this. Jesus had implored the disciples to honor those of no status at all, but they refused partnership with one who did not share the status that they assumed for themselves. 
And that's what happens when we reject Christ's call to discipleship and suffering. It becomes evident now in our final point. Oh, no, sorry, our second point here. Do not be jealous for your tribe or faction. Do not be jealous for your tribe or faction. Now, we need to be jealous and zealous for the truth, the truth of the gospel. And there's truth under attack in our country that we need to be zealous to defend. Truths about the purposes of marriage, truths about identity, other things. We need to contend for those things. Make no mistake. But we aren't fighting for our tribe. We're not fighting for our group. Or to put it another way, if, if God blesses and the church down the street is growing and we're shrinking, that shouldn't bother us if that church down the street is doctrinally and faithfully sound in proclaiming the gospel. We're not called to be defenders of our tribe and faction. Rather, we're called to defend God's truth and proclaim it. Listen, listen to Paul's rebuke in, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, that same issue of factions and divisions. This is a strong rebuke. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you are not ready. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? It's not about defending our tribe or our faction. It's it's about proclaiming Christ and his word. And those who have the gospel right, who are preaching the truth, whether they do it differently than us, whether they, you know, raise their hands in the service, whatever whatever differences we have, they're not against us, they're with us. The apostle Paul got this in Philippians chapter one. He's in jail. He's the apostle commissioned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and then he gets put on the bench for months or even years in a Roman jail, and on top of that, he hears word that there are people out there preaching Christ as a way of sticking it, throwing dirt in his eye. Listen to what Paul says. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking that they will add affliction to my imprisonment. So that's the situation. What then? What's his conclusion? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Disciples aren't willing follow Jesus in his pattern that he is setting. They're not willing to show honor to the lowly. They want to grab honor for themselves. They don't want competition. They're elitist, exclusive. They mistake their enemy. They they, they stop somebody from who's successfully attacking the real enemy. They stop him. Why? He's not with them. He's making them look bad. Finally, They mistake God's purpose in rejection. They mistake God's purpose in rejection. Now, we're just going to briefly look at this because we're going to look at it more next week. But I I want you to see this third example of their mistake in following after Jesus. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, which is a way of saying to be crucified, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
And notice the stark contrast. They want honor. They want praise. They don't want competition. They don't want to associate with the lowly. They want to be told how great they are. Jesus now understands fully. He's come down from the mountain. He's talked with Moses and Elijah. Whatever information or clarity they offered or confirmation, the result for Jesus now is he knows what's awaiting him in Jerusalem. He is under no misconceptions. He knows that the nation will reject him. He knows that he'll be delivered over. He knows that he'll be crucified. Without flinching, without hesitating, making a detour, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his Father's will. Jesus is determined to face and be rejected, suffer, and die. What a, what a wonderful Savior. What a glorious Lord. Said, I mean, twice it tells us this. Um, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. The people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And then here Jesus receives his first general public rejection in Luke. Up to this point, we've seen the Pharisees and the scribes not be big fans of him. But in general, the people... Forget in general, pretty much exclusively, the people are excited, they're praising him, they're following him, they're marveling at him, they're in awe of him. Here's his first sort of general public rejection. This in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. The Samaritan village, the Samaritans were the half-Jews. They were those who were left over when the ten tribes were deported by Shalmaneser, the Assyrian. They intermarried with those around, and they ended up with a syncretized half-version of Judaism that only recognized the, the books of Moses. They had an alternate worship site on the mountain of Samaria. And they were viewed by the Jews as, as totally cursed, heretics, and so when they learn that Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem, they reject him. And that was the big controversy. You remember the discussion with Jesus, the woman at the well, which mountain do we worship on? Our fathers say, you know, um, Samaria. You, you say Mount Zion and Jerusalem. And so there's this, there's this tension. Again, we see more sort of factionism. You know, there's their tribe who worships in Samaria. And there's, there's the Jews. When they learn that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, like, oh, okay, we know whose side you're on, so we don't want anything to do with you. And they reject him. How do, the, how do the disciples deal with that? And notice that Luke singles out James and John. And I think this is striking because these are two of the three men who are up on the mountain with Jesus. As regards to spiritual privilege, insight, these guys were the top of the pile. They, they've seen the most. They've heard and witnessed the most. They've heard Jesus teaching about loving your enemies, about turning the other cheek, Jesus has already given them instruction about what to do if they are rejected. He anticipated that. Look back in chapter 9 to verse 5. He tells them what to do. But whenever they do not receive you, leave that town and shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. That's what you do. Okay? You guys have rejected this message. So while Jesus is determined to suffer Rejection to be rejected, suffer, and die. John and James seek to kill those who reject them. Jesus will be rejected, and he will give himself up, and he will die. 
James and John, they reject Jesus. They reject their group. They need to die. The contrast is striking. Their refusal to listen to their master's teaching is striking. What was the very thing that the voice from heaven said? This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You think they listened? They listened to Jesus back in chapter 6. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Blessed are you when people reject you. Did you listen to that? What about chapter 9? Do they listen to, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily? Do they listen to that? No. And here we see clearly they are still too intoxicated and caught up with this notion of the power and the rights and the judgment and the vindication that we all want. And God says, wait, it's coming. And they want it now. Strangely, verse one, I mean, point one here, they rejected Jesus' teaching on rejection. They rejected Jesus' teaching on rejection. Nope. We won't be rejected. Lord, should we call down fire from heaven on them? In other words, should we kill every last one of them? Or have call on God to do that. I mean, we wouldn't do it ourselves, but should we call on God to kill every last one of them? Yeah, they don't get it. They're caught up in glory now. And when you're caught up in glory and honor and pride now, what you can't have is competitors. You can't be rejected. I mean, that really makes you look bad. And you mistake your enemy. And you mistake God's purpose in rejection. Jesus understands God's purpose for him is to be rejected. He's at peace with that. He accepts that. Jesus has told his disciples, God's purpose in you following after me, he says, is that you will pick up your cross. You'll deny yourself. You will suffer shame in front of men. But if you're not ashamed of me in front of them, I won't be ashamed of you. You may lose your life for my sake, but in doing so, you will gain it. But if you don't believe that, if you reject that, you may end up doing things like this. Oh, you reject me? Well, you need to die. They rejected Jesus' teaching on rejection. What they wanted was vindication and judgment now. There will be a day of vindication and judgment. There will be a reckoning where every idle word spoken will be accounted for. There will be a judgment by the living Christ as he separates the goats from the sheep. There will be a hell where all those who have defied our God and who are not in Christ will reside forever. But it's coming. The judgment is coming. And God is being gracious now. He's not separating the wheat from the chaff now, nor are we called to. This is the error in the Crusades. Or all attempts at, at punishing unbelievers. Waging war on them. It's been tried by our faith and others throughout the Middle Ages. And there will come a judgment. They're, they're relying upon the imagery of, of Elijah. Elijah, a, a Samaritan king, was trying to arrest Elijah, and he sent 50 soldiers, and, and Elijah multiple times calls down fire from heaven, and then it burns them to a crisp. And they are caught up in this. They didn't make the Numbers 11 connection. They made that one all right. 
And they want that type of power and they want that vindication. And there's something partially right in that. When you're mistreated, when you're wronged, when you're abused, there, you read the Psalms, it is right to cry out, how long, O Lord? Lord, write this. R- set the record straight. But to demand it now, that's, that's the problem, to demand it now. Go back again to, to Luke 9, because I think this is really so key. This is the key understanding of what it means to follow Jesus that they weren't getting. There's a now and there's a later There's a now and there's a later, right? Verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and fall. Right now, what are you doing? Self-denial right now. Cross-carrying right now. But whoever would save his life will lose it. Now, the only way that makes sense is whoever will save his life on that day will be willing to lose it now, right? And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So so you're either facing a choice. Do I hold on to, do I cling to life and all the things that come with it now? Well, if I'm going to cling to this life now, I may lose it then. If I'm willing to surrender and give up my life now, I ensure it then. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world now and loses or forfeits himself, implied, then? And then to make it really clear as we're talking about verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words now, of him will, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. In the glory of the Father and the holy angels. There's a glory. There's an honor. There's a vindication. There's a justice. There's a judgment that will be perfect. And it's coming. And our challenge is to trust God with that, to leave that in his hands, to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek and to follow Christ's pattern. And if we're unwilling to do that, we will bear this type of fruit. Now, Jesus was patient with them. He was gentle when he pulled the child aside. He was gentle when he said, look, whoever is not against you is for you. And here, what does he do? He just rebukes them. Just rebukes them. We don't even know how he rebukes them. Maybe, maybe... He pointed them to truths like the ones the Apostle Paul confesses. God has a purpose in rejection. He's called us in part to that as well. And it's, it's to distinguish. As the gospel goes out, it separates. It divides. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So everywhere we go, we're spreading this fragrance of this knowledge. For we are an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. As the gospel goes out, it has two responses. There's an aroma, there's a response of life, and there's an aroma and a response of death. And that is as it should be. That will include and necessitate then rejection and suffering. And that's all part of God's plan. Jesus understands that's part of God's plan, God's purpose in his rejection. It's just James and John who don't and are unwilling. Sometimes, if we're honest, it's us. I mean, we, we want to be thought well of in this country. This country is founded on Christian values, and as it looks like, maybe we won't. We, we can tend to get angry, and those people who are threatening can become the enemy, right? The people who are going to take away our status and our standing. We mistake our enemies, because we want praise now, don't we? We want honor now. 
And we can struggle with these exact same things. We can struggle with these exact same things. Make no mistake, Jesus would rebuke us in that as much as he would rebuke them. I want to call the worship team back up for our, our last song. Just fittingly, a call that we want to follow Christ authentically, that we are willing to pick up our cross. So we're, we're not going to follow him in error. We're not going to follow him in mistake our own way. He's told us how to come after him. He's told us how to do that. Would you, would you stand and confess your willingness to follow after Christ on his terms and not your own? To sing to the Lord our willingness to be his disciples.